I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the 133rd Psalm, Psalm 133. And just in a moment, we're going to read from the Psalms. Uh, just a quick note that the crash has moved. The uh, problem with the room we normally use, so if you need to use the crash, it's a staff room, the school staff room, which is opposite the toilets in the main corridor, just running down the side of this room. And I just want to, also to remind you, friends, that um, if you're new or feeling in any way disconnected from the life of the church, um, we, one of the main ways in which we experience community together is through our home groups, the life groups, which run midweek. And of course, um, as things are beginning to ease up, lockdown is beginning to ease up and it's possible to meet outdoors and so on, these groups are open. I want to strongly encourage you to get involved in one. Just get in touch with uh, the church. You can email info at grace.london or speak to Leslie in particular who stood at the back there and she will make sure that you're connected with the group. Friends, I want to invite you then to read this psalm with me. Psalm 133, it's one of the last of the songs of ascent and it's the last one that I intend to for us to look at in this short series that we've been uh, working our way through some of these psalms. And it says this, a song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This psalm uh, addresses a theme of unity. And as you've been tracking with us, many of you have been with us over recent weeks when we've been working through a number of these songs of ascent, I've helped uh, I've sought to help you understand what these uh, songs are about, that they're essentially about recalibrating the hearts of God's people, that when, we're fr- when we experience uh, fractured community and being separated as the Israelites were through most months of the year, the coming back together as one, as they did in festal moments in Jerusalem as we do when we gather as God's people in this way. Those moments provide an opportunity to recalibrate our hearts to the living God, deal with our sin, deal with our fear, deal with issues in terms of our perception of what we're here for, our purpose in life. And this psalm addresses another extraordinarily important theme, which is a theme of unity. Now, I think it's possible that during the season of lockdown that it's possible that some of you have experienced personal flourishing and that perhaps for some of you would say this has been a good time for me in terms of my spiritual life. I know that isn't true for everyone, but I think it's at least conceivable that some of you could have experienced some personal benefit from the space and the time that you've, you've had, the less hurried life that has been true for many of us. But that's not the only way we should consider the situation. It's not just about individual spirituality. The scriptures are never just about your own personal soul health and spiritual health, as important as that is. The other dimension that the scriptures are absolutely transfixed with and and that's everywhere all through the pages of scriptures is the health of God's people as a people. And the honest truth is that many churches are 
in tatters as a result of the things we've been through in this past year. That there is, in many ways, a massive diminishment in the health of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think in terms of when you judge it at the level of individual congregations and the challenges that congregations are facing and the ones that I'm aware of for us. Now, this is why I think the psalm, this last of the psalms that we'll be looking at, calling us to pay attention to this theme of unity, it's not a secondary issue for God's people. It's not a peripheral issue that can just be kind of relegated to the side of our mind. This is central. And it's possible today that God's going to recalibrate all of us to the vital importance of this in terms of our understanding of what God wants to accomplish in us and in his people, the church. When we begin to think about this theme of unity, I want to begin just thinking about it from the perspective of the world. Because I'm aware that this isn't just a, it's not an exclusively biblical theme, is it? The world is interested in the concept of peace and unity and harmony among humankind. It's a dominant theme in our conversation and political dialogue and all these kinds of things. Perhaps not in that language, but it's there all the time in the background. What is the world's approach to this? I want to start there before we consider the church. And I say, first of all, clearly this is something the world desires and that is something that all humans, to some extent, are craving. It's there in our personal longing for belonging and belonging to a tribe and being part of, being able to find identity among people. But it's there on the grand scale of what's happening in the world. You think about, one of, for example, the European Union. We have mixed feelings, don't we, as Brits, about the European Union. But one thing that can be said about it is it's one of the greatest projects in human history to try and build something like unity among diverse peoples. It was built, wasn't it, on the back of two world wars that ravished the continent and with the intention to try and bring about peace and harmony among people and has been more or less successful in that to a certain extent There'd been other problems, haven't there, under the surface, but it certainly in some ways accomplished what it was there for, and hence the grief that many people felt when we turned our back and said goodbye, case of us, we're off, we're going to live our own way. And, uh, you know, we all have different feelings about this, but the reality is a lot of people feel sad about it because they feel like it's the breakdown and the unity that we've experienced on this continent over recent decades. But when you think about, um, when you think about, the way the world approaches and handles this theme of unity. In many ways, I would say that as a general rule, there's a lot of sentimentality and fluff, isn't there? Very often it's approached at an emotional level that's not really substantiated by any real clear plan that will work. And you think, for example, I've pulled up the lyrics here for... um, what many people judge to be the greatest pop song of all time, John Lennon's song, Imagine. And how the second verse in particular articulates what is a, a longing for this. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. What do we make of this? This is, in many ways, a, kind of the distilled, perfect articulation of what is the kind of dream that many people harbor in their hearts for a united world. 
And to be quite honest, I, I think that this song is just pure flatulence. It is, it is one of the most empty-headed, nonsensical songs ever written. And I say it because, really, the only way to accomplish this kind of piece that John Lennon is talking about is to lobotomize everyone. He's describing a world in which no one has any opinions or beliefs, and so we just get along because no one cares about anything, fundamentally. And this is the sentimental nonsense that we see around us when it comes to this theme of unity. And of course, I know that we can taste this. Do you remember, by the way, early in lockdown when uh, the song was recorded by a bunch of celebrities and circulated on the internet to a massive backlash of mockery and ridicule because... It was because it just felt so out of tone with how we were all feeling and thinking, right? And of course, I know that at moments in our lives, we experience an unusual sense of harmony with other people, and, it, and often it comes on the back of suffering. The world wars, in some ways, although they divided, they also bound people together when you were on a common side. The same happened when in the early... Uh, in, in April, March, April last year, didn't it? When we began to experience solidarity with, with the suffering that the whole world's going through. And we start banging pots and pans outside our doors in celebration of our joint effort to conquer this thing. And everyone's given up, haven't they? It doesn't last long. And why doesn't it last long? And the answer is because that kind of sentiment without substance and without foundation cannot sustain unity because human nature reasserts itself very quickly. Human nature is generally antagonistic and selfish. And we generally find ourselves retreating into our respective tribes and experiencing polarization. It's one of the things that sociologists are noting about the Western world is increasingly polarized and has been increasingly so over the last two, three decades. We're not becoming more together. We're becoming more different. And the things that we thought would bind us are actually the things that are dividing us. Think particularly about our connected world online. When I was a kid at school, um, my science teacher used to start every lesson by reading us a deep thought from Jack Handy, who was an American comedian who's sometimes they were funny, not always. But one of them stuck in my mind because I think it kind of, it kind of captures this problem of human nature perfectly. His deep thought was this. I can picture in my mind a world without war, a world without hate, and I can picture us attacking that world because they'd never expect it. And that is human nature, isn't it? Wherever there is peace, it's there to be shattered by the selfishness and the reality that we are not, um, we're not naturally given to harmony and unity. And then you ask, well, okay, that's the situation in the world around us. What about inside the church? And I mean the church broadly. And the fact is that it is not always the harmony and unity that the Bible calls for. I have two pastor friends who were fired by their churches in the last couple of years. I've known churches, not none that I've been a part of, but I've known of churches that have split because of a disagreement that emerges among peoples and the factions that develop within church bodies, church families. You, know, you may have seen the Hanforth Parish Council meeting that went round the internet as well a, a few months ago when you saw the aggression that can take place when people are on committees 
Well, church members' meetings actually very often have resembled that kind of antagonism and conflict and hostility, where church members argue about you know, the appropriateness of spending a few quid on servicing the lawnmower and things like this. And you think I'm joking. I actually literally know this is true. Shocking, right? How often this, these divisions within church life begin among its leaders, the men who are most responsible to be God, godly and watch their hearts. But very often that's where the conflicts begin and, are, and begin to grow and develop. Now, I know this is a somewhat depressing picture, but all I'm trying to help you to see is that what we're he- seeing here as a biblical ideal is not something we always even come close to or attain to. Even when your church is, has no drama going on inside it, that doesn't mean it's enjoying this kind of unity. We can have churches that are cold and distant and formal. Sure, there's, nothing, there's no outright war going on, but there's nothing like the biblical unity we're talking about here. And there are also, by the way, there are also lots of churches where it does seem on the surface to look a little bit more like what David's describing here. But it's just because everyone in the church is basically the same. You know, they have so much in common that they would get along even if they weren't Christians. And you ask yourself at that point, is that anything like what the Bible's describing? And I don't think it is. Now, I say all this because I, I think we have to understand the challenge that we're facing when we talk about this theme and we pursue it. But I still believe passionately in the scriptural ideal. David saw it. He describes it for us here. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, prayed for it. Jeremy drew your attention a couple of weeks ago to John 17 in the, in the uh, midweek meeting. And how Christ prayed in this way. He prayed that they, speaking of his disciples, you and I, that they may all be one just as you are in me, Father, And I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed for unity because he said, that will prove to a watching world that I came from you. Could there be any more important pursuit for the people of God than this? The Holy Spirit creates this. And we're called to labor for it and pursue it with all our might. Now then. As we get into this, I want to, first of all, open up this question. Why is unity so rare? Why is it so hard to achieve? I think it's very important that we start with this angle because we can't understand David's sense of wonder when he contemplated the unity that he was witnessing in Jerusalem. We can't understand his sense of wonder in that moment unless you understand just how difficult this is and how perhaps even humanly impossible this is. And if you are to ask the question, why is unity so hard? I think really it's the coming together of two issues, sin and circumstances. And I want to just quickly open those up for you. One is sin. This is where we find ourselves actually in a head-to-head conflict with the views of the world around us. Secular humanism has had at, at, at its root an optimism that humans can solve human problems. That's what humanism is at, at its core. And so the world of the last 150, 200 years has been marked by moments of surging optimism. We can build the peace and the harmony and the collective humanity that we desire. How do we do it? We can do it through education. 
and we can do it through laws, and we can do it through policies, and so on. And these things will take you, they will take you a certain distance, but really they can only mitigate the problem of the human heart and the problem of human nature that is always causing division among us. And the Bible has as it, in its story a much more realistic depiction of the challenge of this. And I think the Bible would answer this kind of, you know, we can work hard and we can fix our problems with saying, no, no, that's actually a delusion. You cannot. You cannot. No system, no laws, no ideals can deal with sin, which is at the core here. You think, for example, one of the great efforts in the last couple of decades in in our nation to kind of bring about unity among our people has been the hatred, the anti-hatred laws, laws against hateful acts and hateful speech. Of course, they can have an effect. They can mitigate the, the damage that we can cause to one another. But can they come anywhere near the biblical ideal, which is that we're called to love one another? No. Nowhere near. And the Bible says, look, this is because you've got to reckon with the problem. You've got to reckon with what the problem really is at its core. And the problem is sin that exists in every heart. Now, I think this is, this is laid out for us so plainly in Scripture, but you only have to start by reading the book of Genesis. Genesis is a fascinating book. All theology springs from Genesis. It begins there. One of the main ideas you pick up in Genesis is that when God created humans in their perfection and harmony, we fell into sin. The fruit of that is told in a new, numerous stories that occur throughout the book of Genesis, and it is this that brothers begin to hate and despise one another. The book of Genesis is a story about brothers and brotherly rivalry. It begins in Genesis 4, the chapter right after the fall takes place, when Cain murders his younger brother Abel. And you read on through Scripture, and you then begin to meet uh, Ishmael and Isaac, the two sons of Abraham, born to different mothers, and how there is this brotherly rivalry and this scorn. Then you read on through the page of scripture and you come to Esau and his younger brother Jacob and how Jacob tricks Esau out of his inheritance on two separate occasions in different ways and they end up in a blood feud where Jacob has to flee. They end up reconciled at some point but ultimately their lives are dominated by antagonism. And then you read on and you come to Joseph and his older ten brothers who hate him so much that they sell him into slavery. He ends up a slave in Egypt, ends up in prison, ends up in a dark, dark place. Of course, the story turns around through the redemptive grace of God that brings brothers back together. But the book of Genesis is all about brothers, and it's all about how brothers fall out because of sin. So when David opens this psalm and says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, he's saying this is a miracle because look what our scriptures tell us. Brothers are not naturally inclined to even like each other. The New Testament agrees with this assessment of human nature. I think, for example, of um, a couple of verses. One is in Ephesians 4, where the Apostle Paul, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. He's writing to Christians here and he's saying, listen, these are the kinds of sins that divide us. Bitterness, anger, wrath, malice. Peter agrees with him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 
He says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These things, the Bible is honest. He says these things exist in God's people. They exist in churches. We're to get rid of them, but they exist in our own hearts, don't they? And what they do is they pull us apart from one another. What's the problem then? The problem is sin. It's always sin, right? But most fundamentally it's sin, I should say. Because there's another aspect to this, which is also circumstances. What is it that divides us? And the answer is actually, it isn't always sin. That's an incorrect statement. We're also divided by, the, by life. And by the fact that there are situations that make it more difficult for us to love each other and to get along. Let me take as an illustration here the challenge of long-distance relationships. Many of us will have known couples who fell in love with a twinkle in their eye in that kind of gooey, um, mushy, romantic moment, and then they were separated tragically by distance, being overseas before they could, you know, covenant together in marriage. And more often than not, what happens? The love sort of dwindles and dies and disappears, doesn't it? The exception being, of course, one of my co-elders, Luke, Married to Janice, now baby, long-distance relationship success story. You can ask them for tips later. But by and large, these things don't work. Why? Because relationships are built on communication, and communication is more than just words. You can send words across oceans, but communication is more holistic than that. It's presence. It's affection and touch and service and expressions And the interactions that are only possible when you're face to face. And so what begins to happen to couples who are separated by distance is that very often, unless they work very hard, very often the love begins to diminish because the communication is inhibited. Distance comes in. Now I only use that as an illustration because friends, the thing that we have to understand here is this. That very often distance can come in between us even when we're together. And I think primarily this is to do with our differences, our natural differences. The Bible, again, is very honest about this. Early on in the book of Genesis, you read the story of Babel, the Tower of Babel, how humans come together to build this great tower, and in their pride, God judges them, and so he separates them by multiplying languages so they can no longer communicate so easily. That natural sort of, that sort of uh, practical issue of speaking different languages becomes a kind of symbol of the challenge of humans getting along because of our differences. And we find that when we're thrown together into church families such as this one, there are so many differences between us. I think about the differences like class. I know not all of you are from Britain, but class is still a powerful shaper of our society. There isn't anyone among us who hasn't felt out of place if you've grown up in Britain in a different social strata because you found that you didn't speak the same language in in a sense. All of us have felt it. Race is a huge issue here. And perhaps with it, and it's hard to separate these things out, but they are different, but they're also complementary, is the issue of culture and cultural differences. The things that we love and hate and think the way that we're... We're structured by our upbringing to think about the world a certain way. We bring all these differences with us when we come into church, don't we? Age differences. We're seeing, aren't we, massive distinctions now between 
the older generations in our nation and younger ones. And of course, it means that when you gather with people across age groups, the Western world has become very bad at relating across age boundaries. It's not true in every society. It is emphatically true for us. We could go on, but what I'm telling you is this, that yeah, sin can be involved here and is involved and inhibits us, but the problems are our differences, our circumstances, the difference of upbringing and of, of, of uh, the language we speak, as it were. I know because I've spoken with some of you about this, how this affects your experience of being part of a church. You walk into a church and immediately you're assessing what, whether there are people like you. And this is human nature, isn't it? This is the way we're wired. We find it difficult to make, to bridge the distance that's between us. These are circumstances that divide. I can think also about the city, the effect of being in London. London's an extraordinary thing because it brings us all together. There are 99% of you I would never have met if we weren't all drawn to this city. So London has brought us together. But London also keeps us apart to a degree, doesn't it? Because it is a city in which... It's so expensive that we end up moving further and further away from each other. And it takes 40 minutes to get anywhere in London, doesn't it? And you, you find as well that people are very busy. Their lives are busy. And there are all kinds of issues. There's transients. There are literally hundreds of people who've been part of Grace London in the short time that we've existed as a church who are no longer here. The church would be two, three, four times the size if everyone just stayed. You think how these are challenges that are almost insurmountable, it seems, except for the grace of God. And then I can add another circumstance to this. What about lockdown? Lockdown has been destructive to church life, and we have seen this in our own church, haven't we? And I think this, can be, this story can be multiplied out across the nation. And these are circumstances, not necessarily things that we could have foreseen or done anything about, but they're just there. Now, so far, I've laid out for you the challenges and the problems, partly so that I can paint you a picture in relief here of the, of the, the majesty of what David is describing. What does God want us to think and feel about this? And here's a challenge for you, because some of you are cynical and wounded by your experiences of church, either here or in previous churches and when you become wounded and cynical you can become introverted in your social and your connections with church life you'll be more tempted for example to tune in via the live stream than to to come across town and be part of a, a gathering you prefer to sit at home in your woundedness than to reach out and connect with other people some of you are afraid because you naturally don't feel that it's easy to overcome barriers with other people, whether because of your personality and shyness or because of past experiences or whatever. And some of you are just apathetic to this. You say, okay, I need a bit of church, but I just need to go there, get recharged, plug in, and then go home. I'm good for the week. And you haven't really caught the biblical vision of what church is, and so you're not giving yourself to it. And against all these sort of different mindsets and approaches, I want you to see what David sees here. I want you to see and catch what he is essentially giving to us, which is the divine perspective on this thing. And I want to show you what he sees. And I'll show you, first of all, that he sees that unity is something beautiful. 
He says it is good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. Good and pleasant. It makes him happy. And then he begins to bring in these metaphors, these images to kind of fill out the sense of the pleasantness and the goodness and the beauty of, of unity. He talks about oil on Aaron's head. And you probably have no idea what this is about. They were not in the habit of just pouring oil on each other. This was, this was a, a moment. And we're not talking here about just average cooking oil either, okay? This was a moment that took place once in the life of the high priest when he was consecrated for service. And the thing that David is capturing here, which many Israelites would have been familiar with, is the fact that this oil was beautiful. It was something more akin to what we call essential oils today, a concoction of um, overpriced, fragrant oils that were blended into this God-given recipe that was designed to overwhelm the senses as it was poured on Aaron's head. In other words, the first thing you would have noticed if you were in the presence of Aaron as this took place, that I'm sure David had witnessed the consecration of high priests and his, under his rule, the first thing you would have noticed was this, the smell, the overwhelming fragrance. It fills your lungs. Something good. I was recently... Um, listening to Bill Bryson's book on the body, a new book. And he said that when surveyed, most people, if they had to part with one of their senses, you know, the main five senses, he said they would part with a sense of smell. Because they, they it tends to be underrated. We think it's not that important to our lives. But he said that's because we vastly underestimate just how important smell is to your day-to-day well-being and happiness. Smell makes your life much happier. When we had COVID a year ago, I remember one of the things that most depressed me during that three or four weeks when I was recovering was that I lost my sense of smell. That anosmia, as it's called, was very, very frustrating. I couldn't taste anything. Now, I say that because what David's getting across to us here is not just something visual, but something sensual. Something that the Israelites would have considered to be overwhelming. Not unlike walking past Lush on the high street. You know, you only have to be like four meters away from the door and that thing just overwhelms you. And it instantly impacts you, right? Never tempted to go in, but it's interested. Then when he talks about Mount Hermon or Mount Zion covered in dew. Like the dew, he says, on Mount Hermon, which falls on Mount Zion. David had been a shepherd. The shepherds in those days didn't keep their sheep in certain places. They wandered around through the hills trying to find green pasture. So David is talking about something here that would make his heart sing as a shepherd, something that makes him happy. The first thing you have to grasp is this unity is beautiful when it's on display. Another thing here that David wants us to see is that this is something holy. I say that particularly because when we're talking about this oil, did you know that when Aaron and the high priests after him were consecrated by this concoction of oil, the oil was a symbol of them being set apart or made holy or consecrated for service to God. 
And so important was this moment. The oil itself and the recipe was a kind of patented recipe, divine recipe. No one was allowed to concoct this oil on pain of excommunication. If they found you in your kitchen saying, I really like that smell, and you're trying to brew it up, and you've gathered all the ingredients, you're making it, you would literally be banished from the people of Israel never to return. Why? Because the oil was holy and set apart for one purpose and one purpose alone, the consecration of God's priest. Now this speaks to us in a powerful way because what it's saying is this. that When David witnessed unity among God's people, when he saw brothers dwelling in unity, he's saying this is because something holy is happening here. We've been called out from the world to love one another, which is why the New Testament says on so many occasions, love one another. You read John's letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, he keeps repeating it again and again and again. Love one another, love one another, love one another, because he's saying this is a mark of what it means to be a holy people. We have this. Let me tell you also that what David shows us here is that this unity is supernatural. He looks at the love that exists when he says, he has brothers dwelling in unity and he knows, he's read the book of Genesis, he knows this is an impossibility on human terms. This has to be something that God alone can create among us. And as you begin to explore in more depth and meditate upon the analogies he uses here, this becomes obviously true. He uses the image of the oil, first of all. Of course, oil, this holy oil that was used for the anointing of God's priests and another oil that was used for the anointing of the king, it spoke of the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them for the task to which God had called them. This is, in other words, a God-given, God-present moment. The Holy Spirit coming and bringing about something unique and special. When I read the New Testament, one of my favorite passages of Scripture is the end of Acts chapter 2. The early part of Acts chapter 2 describes the coming of the Holy Spirit upon God's people. But the end of that chapter begins to describe the fruit of it among the church in terms of the way they experience church life together as God's people. And what does it say there? It's a passage which I, I, I think I will return to with you in, in the near future. But it says that they were devoting themselves to the teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then it goes on and says this, that all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were sharing their possessions. They were so loved up with the community. It says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The picture here is of the people who were not content just to go to church and return home every Sunday or every Saturday, whatever they were doing at the time. He said the picture here is of a people who were with each other every single day of the week, living in deep community, sharing possessions so that no one was poor among them. And constantly eating and celebrating and praying together. And you think that image of the people of God expressing and enjoying profound unity, where does it come from? The answer is, well, the Holy Spirit had come upon them. 
The Holy Spirit accomplished in a moment what no amount of preaching and teaching could ever accomplish in us. It's not that the preaching and the teaching isn't part of forming our imagination, our desire and our longing, but the Holy Spirit has to do it. It has to be a God-given thing. The same is true when David's talking about this dew. It made sense when he references Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon's far off in the north. I've seen Mount Hermon from a distance. And it's in the cooler area. It's much higher altitude. But Zion? Zion didn't typically enjoy dew. So when David's talking about dew on Mount Zion, he's talking about something supernatural here. The presence of God. And one thing you notice, it's not necessarily so clear in the English, but it's apparently the commentators tell us that it's there in the language that he uses in the Hebrew. That he, what he's, he keeps speaking about the coming down. You see it there in verse 2. It's like precious oil on the head running down, on the beard of Aaron running down. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains. He keeps using the language of descent. The Hebrew word is the same in all three occasions. And it means this. This is a blessing that's coming down from God onto God's people. This is God-ordained, God-created, supernatural unity. This is not something that you can explain on human terms. Which is why, by the way, I find myself somewhat cynical about churches that have only grown on very explicable human terms, where everyone is alike. Friends, we need to aspire to something much greater than that, which is the unity of, very different, of our differences. A unity that can only be something that God accomplishes among us. It is supernatural. And last, friends, this is also gospel. This this unity is not just beautiful, holy, and supernatural. It is also the gospel being put on display. I told you earlier how the Bible gives us quite a depressing analysis of human nature and the challenges that we have to overcome to love one another. Paul puts this very vividly in Titus chapter 3. He says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He's saying this is what humans do. We hate each other. You have any doubt about that? Just survey the comment section on any website. And you see, this is human nature unfiltered. When you take away the filter of politeness, there it is on display. Hating one another. You think that's a bit strong, isn't it? No, it's not strong. The things people have said to me online, the things I've said to others. Let's be frank, shall we? And then he says this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. How does goodness and loving kindness appear? Well, it appears in one man, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, he saved us. Paul means he saved us from all of that. Which is why this psalm, as he's describing this unity, it pulsates with gospel. It pulsates with the realities of our great hope. He says, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Do you know that that's your new identity when you become a Christian? You're now a brother in the church of God. 
you belong, your family. He talks about the precious oil on the head, and it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. This is the gift that the Lord Jesus Christ endowed upon us when he ascended to the Father's right hand. He commanded, Spirit, fall on my people, so that my people will be united. He talks about this oil running down on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Aaron, of course, the the high priest, was a, a precursor to the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who represents us before the Father. So David is evoking within our imagination the unity that we enjoy because we are God's people in the Lord Jesus Christ, who forever stands before us interceding before the Father. He talks about the Jew that's coming on Mount Hermon and Mount Zion. And of course, this evokes within our imagination the fact that we are people who belong to a heavenly city, the city, the new Jerusalem, Zion, not this earthly city. That's what unites us, our future together. And he says, last of all, that there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What distinguishes you and me from the world around us? It's this, that you now have life. A gift from God given to us through Jesus, our Savior. The psalm is just full of gospel. David is praising the gospel. One of the most vivid experiences I had of seeing what the gospel can do to change a heart and bring about love and unity in what was only hate. There's a man I met maybe a decade ago, a Palestinian man who'd grown up despising the Jews, of course, and radical in his fervor for Islam. He trained to be an imam and to sing the Quran in his call to prayer in the mosque. And then God saved him. And introduced him to Jesus. And this man was radically transformed by the gospel. One of his sort of party pieces was that he had learned how to now sing the Psalms in Hebrew. Along the style of the way he used to lead the call to prayer in the mosque. The same melodies and incantation. It's a beautiful thing to listen to as he sung the word of God in Hebrew. And more than that, remember, this man had been bred to despise Jews. Now all he wanted was for God to save them. There he was in the middle of Beirut, in the Hezbollah district of Beirut with his office planted there because that's where he led a little church. And on the wall of his office, as a kind of joke, I suppose, but also inviting trouble, he had a great poster of Jerusalem. Now his heart had been turned from a heart of hatred towards a heart of love to the very people that he despised all his life. And there's no way to explain that except that Christ brings love where there is malice. Friends, I wanted to end our series here on this particular psalm because this is an invitation to step into and to rekindle what is a God-given ideal and also a birthright for us as God's people. We do not simply sit back and let the gifts of God wash over us 
passively, we are to take hold of that which, for which Christ has taken hold of us. And one of the things we are to take hold of is this enjoyment of unity. How do we do that? Through praying for it. We do it through committing to being with and part of God's people. One of the great dangers of this year is the, the fact that it has form, reformed our habits. That we now think it's equally appropriate to sit at home with a television and participate in worship as though that's church. That is not church, friends. It's a pale imitation of church. Church is being with other Christians worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, for where two or three are gathered, there I am among them. And this requires more than just a, a kind of convictional agreement. It requires a commitment. One of the most depressing things about modern Western Christians is our weakening commitments to the bonds of church life. How we think going to church once a month means you're committed to a church. It does not, friends. You compare that with Acts chapter 2 and the daily interactions that the people of God enjoyed. That was the answer to Christ's prayer when he says we prayed that there'll be one that, that the world can see that I have come from you. The world is not impressed with weak commitment among Christians. But when they see fervor, it preaches the goodness of the gospel and the greatness of what it means to be part of God's people. This calls for our commitment. It calls for our repentance also and our willingness to fix the things that are broken among us. This year, because of the physical separation that we've experienced from one another, has led to more friction in church life than I have ever known in my entire life. And there, are, there is not a pastor who isn't considering, is this really what I want to do with my life? And what that calls for is, of course, for every believer to take seriously what is God's ideal for us and to repent of our sin, to confront one another where we need to confront, to repent where we need to repent, to forgive each other. Love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says. It means that not everything has to be talked through to the death. You can just move on. And stop thinking about it. And start ruminating on it. And start imagining people in their worst light. And friends, ultimately what we're called to is to the celebration of the gospel. This is why we have to be together. It's why we sing, isn't it? Because we are glorifying the gospel. The saving plan of God that unites us in him. I want to close in prayer. Will you pray with me? Joel, I wonder if you could come and prepare to lead us in a responsive worship. Oh, Father. We readily acknowledge that the problem that prevents us from enjoying this unity that David described and reveled in is always a problem that begins inside us, Lord. It's greatly magnified by the circumstances we have found ourselves in in the course of this year and the great challenges we've had in being prevented from relating to each other in an ordinary human way. 
God, I call out to you and pray, would you, by the power of your spirit, rebuild among us and among your church at large the enjoyment of this spirit birth unity that is our birthright in Christ, our Savior. I pray, Lord, that you'll heal the breaches. I pray that you'll rebind relationships where they've grown weak. I pray that you'll re-envision us for what it is that we're called to pursue and to enjoy. I pray that, Lord, you'll help change our habits and our behavior so that, we'll, Lord, we'll be committed to your people. I pray ultimately that Christ will have the glory in his church. And I ask these things in his precious name. Amen.